Welcome to the Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, educator, and I'm your host. I want to encourage you to check out the RK Collective Mastermind, brought to you by the Perion Zoe. We'll be launching our second cohort in July. If you're interested in body, mind, and spiritual growth with a great community, and if it's a good fit for you, check us out at www.lifeofexcellence.io. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area, who has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including rolfing. To learn more about Cosper, you can visit his website at www.cosperscafidi.com. Our guest today is Alexis Thompson. Alexis Thompson is the best-selling author of the book, Power of a Graceful Leader, Flow, Integration, and Alignment. She's a keynote speaker, executive integration coach, member of the Forbes Coaching Council. Her work is guided by her life's mission to create safe spaces for souls to show up. <laughs> How are you doing, Lexi? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. It's great good. to see you. Thanks for being on the show. So what I like to do is, is in your book, which I've already shown, The Power of a Graceful Leader, you tell some amazing stories with case studies of how people opened up into various of the six tenants you share in your program. But for our listening audience, I think it'd be very interesting for them to get a sense of your openness that you had over time. And there's two that stand out that I'd like you to share if you wouldn't mind. One is around a couple that you work with and their loss of a child, which is which just really sad to read, but it really kind of woke you up to a certain aspect of yourself and way you related in the world. Can you share that story? Yeah, I can. Um, thanks for asking. It was a pivotal time in my life. I was the mother of two very young children, and I was running a chapter of a missing children's organization in Texas. And <clears throat> I took the job with all the glamour, all the PR work, managing the millions of dollars of donations, and um, then children were going missing. And so when people see where the money's going, they call those numbers, right? It makes sense. Um, unfortunately for me, I didn't have a, a huge amount of um, train, formal training. I don't know if there is formal training in that, but formal training um, to get me through the search and rescue aspect. So I ended up making friends in that field pretty rapidly in law enforcement and outside of law enforcement. And we um, had a, there was a case in, 2000 where, 99 to 2000 it straddled, where a young lady went missing from the college campus in Montgomery, <clears throat> the Woodlands, Montgomery, Texas. And it was a, the family was like a well-known in the community. They had a lot of enforcement, a lot of law enforcement in their family. So it got a fair amount of press, maybe more than what might be considered normal, if there is a normal. And, um, and so they called and I, just said yes. I didn't. I didn't know what else to say. So yes, I'll be there. Yes, we'll figure it out. Um, and it was pivotal for me in a lot of ways, just as a young woman, as a mother, um, as a human being. And so the process unfolded, and we worked across state lines. We had federal, state, local authorities involved. Um, the good news, if which seems weird to say, but it's true in this particular landscape, is that. We found Melissa, um, her, we found her not alive, but we found her body. So it's tragic that we found her not alive. There's closure when you at least know you're not looking in the street every day for your child, trying to imagine what they would look like at 16, 20, 25, you know? So in that they, they found who committed the murder um, and all of that stuff kind of got buttoned up, you know, as good as it can be with all of the, stress, drama, and trauma to the family that you could imagine. And her parents were, and I would guess are, I haven't talked to them in quite a few years, but really good examples of community-minded people who fiercely, of course, love their daughter. And in the space of them trying to figure out, okay, this is now a new fact in our life and who we were prior to this, doesn't look like it's who we're going to be after this, right? And we don't really know, even know how to get from the moment we're in in hell to something other than this hell. 
And so a large part of that when families go through this is some kind of counseling, as I think you can imagine. And in this particular um, situation, they were coming to my home and they were receiving support there in the counseling mode. And I remember just being in the other room because we all got very quickly bound together through the tragedy. So there weren't a lot of barriers to entry to share just whatever showed up emotionally. And I just remember, and, and I share this story in the book that she and her husband were saying, you know, he was upset, rightly so. She's equally upset, but it's, it's manifesting itself somewhat differently. And in there, there's a, a willingness on her part to be upset, to be angry, to be downright fiercely angry, and also hold this thing in love and grace for another human being who did this. It looked like at the time, now the trial wasn't complete, but by all indications, this person did this to their daughter. Um, and allow that anger to exist at the same time the love for humanity existed. And I had not seen that in action before. And I, I didn't understand as a mother of two young people how that could be. I think it, I always thought it would be one or the other, like most of us might get sucker punched into. And the display of her being willing to say, yes, this is bad. Yes, there's consequences for it. And can you imagine what he might have been going through or is going through now? I was like, who cares? You know, like, I, I erased his humanity in that moment, but she wasn't allowing that to happen. And that was, a, for me, in, the, in talking about the title of the book, that was one of those biggest graceful moments that I think a human being could probably display. Um, and it was surreal and it was grounding for me. Yeah. You know, one way to, to, to mm -hmm. talk about the title Graceful Leaders is explain what it is, but also compare and contrast. And you actually do a great job the beginning of the book talking about two different styles of leadership that have emerged recently conscious leadership and steward steward leadership and then you can you explain how it relates to graceful leadership that might be a nice time to kind of can you explain that those different types of leadership and yeah. contextualize it in the kind of whole system that you've created sure so i you know so i always feel i don't know what it is in me if it's the i'll just say what i'm feeling like I didn't really create this. It just kind of surfaced. Like, I think it's always been here and I just gave it some words for us to try to rally around it. So conscious leadership, you know, if you read about it and how I take away now, someone else may take something else away, is the ability to be in choice, right? Like I can choose this or choose that. I, I have enough intellect and emotional EQ to understand the consequences with either choice. Perhaps I've developed enough intuition to even uncover unintended consequences before they, I have to experience them. So that's a conscious awareness. It's kind of being in flow with all things in the situation you're involved in. Sir, the servant steward leadership is really just the idea that a leader can serve from something other than the top and, mm -hmm. and something other than command and control, which is a little outdated for our time. I mean, not to say it doesn't have, you know, a moment here and there where it needs to show itself, but it's really just moments and uh, not ways of being anymore. And so the graceful leadership for me, how I try to wrap it up so it becomes practical and not just this lovely theory that we play with, which I love doing, but if I can't move it into action, I get a little frustrated. So for me, graceful leadership takes that conscious awareness. It, it allows intuition to play a part. It understands accountability and the choice dance that we all do and lives into that. And then it also understands that I can lead from any place, from the top, the side, the middle, the below, any place, the infinity symbol is used for that reason so that you can understand where on the infinity symbol you kind of flow through and you can over time move there gracefully, right? And be really situationally appropriate in all aspects of yourself. What I have found with working for leaders for a few decades is that most of us can do that intellectually. You know, we got where we are because we're smart cookies and we pushed through and we worked hard. But the gap started to show up, you know, senior director, VP level, and the next step where you're doing a lot more influencing than you're doing doing, people were starting to show up with gaps and it was always, it most often was a heart-centered gap. They just didn't trust their own knowingness 
enough to fall into that. And so they couldn't embody their own leadership, which is the grace center. So your heart center is where your heart is, right? And then right around it where soul exists, and if you study chakras and things like that, that's what the grace center is. It's the energy force that actually is around your physical heart. And when you can start to be in that and when it's uncomfortable, being in when it's joyful, all the things that come and go, you start to embody the leader that you are. And then the grace, the consciousness, the servant, all of it just kind of gets really quickly in a line and you're more peaceful, you're more gentle, but you're no less powerful and you're no less fierce. It kind of brings to the point of Mrs. Trotter when she was bringing that, yes, there's a consequence for his behavior. It's probably death in the state of Texas, which it was. And yes, he's a human being and there's something there in the reverence of that. It's, it brings those things to be able to coexist and it removes duality. And when we get when we move right, wrong, and all the judgments that we do to sort our world out, it gets really interesting, right? To sit in the gray and be willing to be there and move within it with other people rather than having to sort each other out. You, you, oh, no, completely. And I, and I, okay. love, I love the integration of power and, and heart. Mm -hmm. And I think it might be nice for you now if you, there's a story you tell about your own boss when you're a boss at one point teaching you a lesson about leading from the heart, not just leading from the intellect. And yeah. if you could tell that story, I think that'd be great. Yeah, it was a humbling lesson for sure. So, you know, I'd done all the things. I was always no, number one on the leaderboard for revenue generated. Um, I'd done all the right things and self-development projects to be the leader, got the VP title. <laughs> and, and I understood my metrics. I really wasn't first on the leaderboard. And that's really all that mattered because that was the measuring stick that was being used for me, for that them on me and me with me to design my worthiness and my ability to belong, right? So um, one day I, I had a, there's a person on the team that reported to me and she wasn't doing what she needed to do. And I just point blank said, hey, we agreed you were gonna do this, you haven't done this, this is the consequence. Do you think you can straighten it out in the next week or do we need to levy the consequence, which was, you know, the whole write you up kind of process. Um, that I did it just like that. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of heart, you know? So this poor person's looking back at me, what do you say to someone? They're your boss. You're just like, mm -hmm, yeah, I can do it. You know, there's no room for anything else. And um, so she said that what I would expect her to say, what I wanted her to say. So I just checked the box and was moving about my day. That was all better, right? Well, my boss was like, we were kind of in a cute situation and he had been over there and he heard all that. And I think he wanted to punch me but he didn't, but we happened to be walking out. I don't think it was happened to you at this point. I think he was waiting for me to find to some alone time without calling me out, which was quite generous of him. So we're getting into the elevator and he's just like, we were the only ones there. And he's like, hey, that ain't cool. That isn't how we treat people. It isn't who I think that you are. It isn't a leader we want on the team. And you've got to kind of make that decision. So, um, he gave me the task to find stuff, find a tool, find a class, find a something um, where I could be willing to be more human, as he put it. Um, and I, of course, I did. I did just what she did to me. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, went to my car, cried, hit the steering wheel. You know, I was really angry, um, embarrassed for sure. And then, you know, after I worked through all that, I started picking up tools and found a way out of that. But it was a gift he gave me. No, no, it definitely was a gift. And and I love your your book because you in your stories are gifts that either you receive that opens you up to new ways of being and relating, and or you tell amazing stories about some of your clients who, thanks to your coaching, you help open them up to new ways of thinking and being and acting in the world. You know, you, you have six tenets. Let me just briefly walk through them. Yeah. Integrating mind, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. Evolving alignment of soul and self. Mm -hmm. Connecting self and universe co-creating innovate innovative mm -hmm. compassionately powerful in all things what i'd like to do is you know your personal mission statement and the mission it's the mission and why your mission and vision and why why you are here is under integrating mind body and spirit mm -hmm. and i'd love for you to tell because i've already read what your mission statement is uh if you could repeat it and then talk to us about like you know how you went from oh i'm a vp of a company very successful all these metrics 
successful life up to some point. Not that you have to go on a successful life now, it's just different. Um, and then I became a coach and I wanted to help open up other people to new ways of being in the world. Yeah. How did you discover that why and how did you transition from the corporate space being an employee or even high level employee to a coach? Yeah, so that, that story is it actually doesn't, it feels much straighter today than it was when we actually um, started to come together. So when I, in my role, I was an executive recruiter in the CFO space in the accounting and finance space. And that's a really, it's a love, I loved it. It was the hunt, you know, I loved the hunt of that. But what I started to learn was I, I started to get to know these people. When you're talking to senior level people about moving across the nation or the country or out of the country, you learn a lot, right? Really intimate things that are important for someone when they're entertaining that idea. And I started to realize I actually started to care and I started to create relationship with this particular person, which is how I'm wired. I'm more one-on-one than one-to-many kind of person anyway. They get to their job. Um, they eventually either need to hire some new people or they would get nervous. Something was happening and they didn't understand it. They would call me back because I was this safe place for them to say, hey, this is what I thought or this is what's happening. What do you know? Whatever it was. And I started to realize that I really enjoyed that part of it far more than the search into the missile. I call it a missile, you know, because I was finding someone, grabbing them, pulling them over, making a lot of money, transaction complete. That was it. It was unfulfilling over time. So that was the that was the transition there because people would be calling me to build quite tight relationship. And I found myself naturally in an advisor role. Um, not necessarily a formal coaching role at that point because I didn't have the training um, to actually say that I was. And I had some things to learn, quite frankly, <laughs> about how to do that well. Um, and, then, and then I just, you know, it was, it was inside all of that time, kind of between the time that my boss called me out in the elevator to the time that we're kind of talking about now where I decided I was going to create that transition where I'd done a bulk of work in the self-development space um, and in a part of that was to create my own mission statement that wasn't attached to a job, that wasn't attached to an identity piece of being a mother, sister, brother, friend, whatever. It was just the essence of my soul. And so that's where I came up with creating great um, safe places for souls to show up. It started out as six full sentences. Um, I learned one thing I did learn from my boss in the elevator was you have a captive audience. And so I would be in the elevator with my peers because I was practicing my mission statement because, you know, all the gurus said you needed to memorize it, have it on sticky notes everywhere. So I did all those things. But remembering six sentences is really hard. And so we'd be in the elevator and I can remember one of the guys, his name is Jeff, and he just looked at me and he goes, oh, no, because he knew I was going to try to recite my mission statement on the way down the elevator and he would have to engage with it. And he just said to me, he goes, six sentences too much. You need two sentences. I'm not listening to you having two sentences. And I was like, okay. So it went from six to two and eventually to one. Um, but that's it's kind of the evolution. It was, it was a chiseling away, a refining of who I knew I was becoming, who I'd always been. This is the, this is the weird part. Yeah. This is who I've always been. But I covered it up with a bunch of stuff like we all do. And I was trying to do the refining process to get back to the essence of that. And that's, that's pretty much the journey. Yeah. Which is actually a nice segue to the second tenet, which is evolving alignment of soul and self. And you talk a lot about in the book, the kind of identities that we have, a lot of it's based on other people's perceptions of us that lock us into place. And that one of our goals then is to actually find out who we are outside of the conditioning from our culture and, and people in our lives. But before we get there, I want to ask you about somatic awareness, which is part of integrating mind, body, and soul. You've already, you've already mentioned embodied experience. And I'm wondering, you know, in your explorations between the VP role and becoming, you know, the coach that you are today, what kind of somatic practices have you done? And what kind of awakenings have you had as a result of doing them? Because it sounds like yeah. it's an important part of your work. Yeah, so um, I took a lot of assessments. <laughs> You know, um, I tried to understand myself as best I could. This was all with my mind still. So that's an important thing to understand. So with my intellect, I tried to understand who I was in the context of this assessment, this assessment. 
I got the certifications in all of them. You know, I became masterful in the language of many of them. Um, and then I sat back and much like I think all human beings, because we live longer and we're gifted and we don't have to do survival for so long. I just said, this, this is so flat. Like it's so, it's not robust. It's not dimensional. It's not dynamic. It's extremely like flat Stanley-ish, you know? I said, so where's, where's all the good stuff? Where's the juicy stuff that actually makes these words that I do identify with and these ways of being, which I agree I am, but what brings it to life? Like, where's all the stuff underneath that that gives it the zest? So then I started diving into a lot of different spiritual practices. I have multiple different meditation practices. I actually prefer contemplation over meditation now. I found that that just works more for me. I have a fair amount of physical practices that I that I have where I have meditative walks. I combine the two often. My gratitude walk is a staple. I have a sauna that is vital for my health and and to just detox emotionally as well that I use on the regular. Um, I eat rather well most of the time. Um, you know, so I have I have a fair a regimen and each one of those had its own awakening point, you know when I realized that I could, and this sounds silly, but I'm like, I can control the food I eat and it can also be food I like. I mean, that, that was an epiphany. It seems so stupid, but it was. Um, and, and so I worked through that barrier and that took me a while. Or yeah, I'm getting older and my body kind of hurts in certain places, but it doesn't mean I have to stop. I just need to be smarter about how I do something I did now, do now than 20 years ago. Um, so, it's, it's all of those things kind of put together. I would say right now embodiment is the space I'm spending most of my time because I've done the intellectual part was the early half of my life. The spiritual part was midlife and continues. Um, but working with nature and being in my body and fully having all of my senses and turning on senses that I didn't know I had, right? Psychic, you know, all of them, learning where the levers are to turn them all on is my jam right now and it is exciting yeah well and speaking of nature are you in a place to talk a little about your center yeah oh sure okay, so cool. this was you know another pivot point for me was <clears throat> through my gratitude practice the awareness that i love mountains fresh air and fresh water i was sitting in the suburb of houston none of them existed i had to leave so I thought I would, you know, when, when we start to connect with our higher guides and our higher being that are all us, of course, we try to, at least I tried to negotiate, right? So I was like, okay, I'll move to Austin. <laughs> okay. There's fresher water, fresher air, and there's hills. Okay. I'm going to go there. And so I did that for three years, but still spirit was like jamming me up going, yeah, close, but not close enough. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to go out West because I've never been out West and nothing hit, and I came home to my home state, which I said I would never, ever do, ever. And we found a place in the Green Mountains, and I hit my knees in tears, and I knew I was home in, at every level of my cellular being. And we bit the bullet, and we're building a very intimate, community-based um, sanctuary uh, here in, it's called Ubuntu in Vermont. So it's pretty That is nice. awesome. Yeah, no, that is powerful. You know, you mentioned a few times and you mentioned a lot in your book, Gratitude. You already mentioned gratitude practice. Um, can you speak a little about why gratitude such an important, has an important, such an important role in your life mm -hmm. and then also in your coaching? Yeah, so it's actually over the door of our building. It's, it says gratitude is our foundation. It, that's how key it is. When, when we live in our heads, and the smart, the higher your IQ, the more gratitude can tie, can create you, help you create the road from head to heart that is well run and can be turned on at any degree, not just on or off. And so gratitude was something that I got into a long time ago because I was being quite pissy about some things. Like I found myself being really negative. Like, why is this happening to me? And, you know, all the victim kind of internal dialogue that doesn't serve anything. And I was like, okay, this is how I'm really wired. This is just a situation. And how do I get myself out of this situation? Because depression was, you know, playing out in the fringes as well. 
And gratitude was the key answer for me. You know, it wasn't a straight line. I picked up the practice, put down the practice, picked it up, put it down. Um, but at this point, it's so fundamental to my being that I'm in gratitude out of, a, out of 24 hours. I'm in deep gratitude 18 of those 24 hours, and it's conscious. And, and I have it in my, in my coaching practice. Like, you have to agree to do this or you aren't really a good match anymore. Um, I created a journal for coaching that helps guide us because I know time, time is a, a lot of us are under the illusion and therefore it's our truth that time is linear. And so because we have that belief, we work within that belief. And so I have to break down a, a little bit of a linear, you know, way to journal. It doesn't feel so heavy or burdensome to people. And it just quickly unlocks their heart, their heart center. So then we can get into gray center. We can do work. That would normally take you two or three years and six months to 12 months. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a catalyst. It's an accelerant. It's a manifestation tool. On, I don't even know how to explain that one. Um, but yeah. yeah uh, another part of the opening the heart around gratitude, you also talk about empathy. But what I'd like you to do is contextualize it in either we. And I, and I loved among many things in your book, you know, obviously, yes, we need to go from I to we. So it's not just about egoic stuff. It's, you know, my tribe, my group, or as inclusive as we can and want to be. But I love that your I to we is also I inside of myself to the we inside of myself. Mm-hmm. Kind of recognizing that there's almost, you know, if you want to use subpersonalities or internal family systems approach, you know, there's multiplicity inside of us. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love that. And it might be a good time to use Nadia as one of the case studies um, and her perfectionism and yeah. empathy and how that, how your work with her helped her show up differently for herself, her family and her work mates. Yeah. She's an incredible human being. Yeah. She makes me smile just thinking about her. So when we first met, it was under huge duress. Um, she had been, she was, she's a long time, employee so she wasn't at the risk of losing her job yet um that also isn't the culture where she is but she was at the risk of definitely plateauing her career and like because there was an eap claim against her for racism and uh so we had to dig it i mean you she meets her coach in day one we're talking our she's she's having to talk about i'm not a racist and i'm trying to gently hold a mirror about how we all are you know like i am you know we all have those biases built in whether we're aware or not aware based on whatever the thing is that we're doing and did that mean that she was a racist and had egregious acts on someone else no that wasn't true um but there is an essence of that inside every being it's a survival thing um and so we got to explore some pretty intimate things really really quickly because of that particular topic so we don't normally get that deep that fast but because she did and because she was so raw in the moment she was willing to be um uncustomarily uncomfortable for longer than most people are willing to do it and in there there's there's the opportunity for mass transformation and so nadia is an extremely deeply heart-centered person but if you met her on the street you there would be no experience of that back then and even now it would be hard for you to see it it's there and she's working on you know making it more visible um but it it wasn't available to her to her daughter to her husband to her employees to the world and it's it was a huge gift that she was restricting right so part of this brings us back up into um the tenet of evolving because there, there was a giving and receiving imbalance in her life. And I, and I could identify it because it was core for my life as well. And I think a lot of Americans, quite frankly, have this thing where we are more than willing to give everything we have time, money, clothes, what resources, but God forbid that we ask for and, or someone offers something they say we need and re, and set and allow ourselves to receive it. It is, it is such a conundrum for people. And I, and I used to be one of those people. I'm not anymore. But um, it was a healing that when, when she entered into that and she understood that people were offering her things that didn't have strings attached 
or she could trust her own discerningness, discernment skills to know when there was a string attached and how to set a healthy boundary if she didn't want that string or to say no if that wasn't welcome. Uh, that's when her heart center started to blossom because she created her own safety for herself by being empathetic to her, which goes back to the many versions of ourselves. Because mm -hmm. you guys, we survived teenager. We survived our teenage years. There's at least, <laughs> you know, 12 different versions of ourselves during those years, if nothing else. And so yeah. being able to go back and just soothe and reparent if needed, or just be with that part of yourself that held on to something. And at 17, you didn't have the skills, but at, today at 54, I do. And just make it okay and offer the skills back at the time where the hurt happened um, is it's life changing. Because once you can get mm -hmm. safe in your own stuff, in your own body, there's nothing to fight for anymore. There's nothing to hoard. There's, you just become more loving. Yeah. You know, I use the word perfectionism because that's kind of how you, um, when you do the case study around her, could you just do a few moments explaining, you know, how perfectionism fit into yeah. her and yeah. your work helping to unpack that yeah. and kind of live differently? So it started with a presentation of self. So Nadia is someone who presents not a hair out of place, everything matched, you know, that's not good or bad, but that was, that was how it got presented and it's the experience you had of her was, wow, I wish I could be so put together. That would be your internal dialogue. Wish I could be so put together as Nadia or I wish I could, whatever. But behind all of that was, that wasn't the experience that was happening for her at all, right? That was her strategy or her coping yeah. mechanism. And we all have them. So she's not wrong or right for it. It just was the one that she picked up. And so that didn't stop there. It was, um, she can be very detailed and she's an amazing, that's one of her strengths. But as you rise into a senior VP role, you can't do that anymore, right? You can, like you can, but you can't, you know? <laughs> right, 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 right. There's a lot of breathing room in here for others to take up that space. And when you as a senior leader do the nosedive down into here where you really don't belong, you, you send a big message. You know, a lack of trust um, of yourself or others is just the easy one to pick up. And there's a whole bunch of other ones. And so that those are behaviors that was being exhibited and and once once she could see that um then she had to get really honest in why she did because it was a trust issue well if i if i go to my to the cfo and da, 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 and i don't understand how they got this number down here on the spreadsheet then i probably shouldn't speak to it and i, I was like hmm you know so she had to get there and do that work to understand well you hired this person are they not capable? Oh, no, they're very capable. They know that every time I never have to look at her numbers a second time and I go, and then the, kind of the light bulbs start to go off and you start to step back from it and look at it and go, oh, yeah, okay. And then when you start to realize that you have all this time that you're diving down into perfectionism in areas that you're hurting others, installing yourself, and you look up as a senior leader, there's a lot of room for creation if you stop out that nonsense. And so we were able to, she was able to redirect her energy to more strategic work, which is what they needed from her. Um, mm -hmm. Once she was able to set some healthy boundaries, clean up some areas where she didn't trust the person, because that was true in some areas, and then just mm -hmm. let go, you know. Um, and when she would feel nervous, she would, each of her direct reports, she would say, hey, I'm having one of those perfectionist moments and I'm feeling nervous about this particular thing. Can you assure me? And then they would double check, not her. And then we come back in to share with And that was just a good strategy to get out of the way. And, and what's, what's great is it kind of you, you show the intergenerational transmission mm -hmm. of these survival strategies. Because the way you tell the story is, is she learned that as a result of pleasing her father. Mm -hmm. She wanted love from her father. She needed to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And then she was kind of doing that to her own daughter. But mm -hmm. since she was able to stop that pattern herself, She's yeah. able to kind of create the space for her daughter to show up differently in her own life, which I was like, wow, that's very, very cool. It is Nicely really done. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you give another case study of Jackson in overtime. And I want to use that as an example within your six tenants uh, to talk about the contextualizing the six tenants. 
of kind of doing a deeper dive. Like you have to be an active listener. You have to really close, pay close attention. You have to kind of go underneath things. Um, can you tell the story of, of, you know, how we inquired about the challenges they faced, got kind of surface level answers, and it's like that wasn't enough for me. You really thought there's more to it, and dove down deeper. <laughs> yeah, um, this was really interesting because this is a leader that had really strong intuitive skills and really trusted them to the point where they became universal truth. Right? Yeah, and I've done that. I'm sure we all have. Right. So this was, this was a case where this was a leader that did have a knowing and a, like that gut reaction to a particular thing and didn't necessarily understand the real why, but could create a really good story on the surface mm-hmm. level um, and then started to understand that if he could do that, then you could do that and I could do that. So that maybe in some areas, other leaders were also doing that. So he started to get really, really good with his inquiry, right? So how do I ask that without off-putting my buddy, right? Um, and say to him, hey, I think that you're screwing up. That's really why no, the hours are there. <laughs> I really can't say that. So how do, I, how, do I, how do I gently inquire without making him look bad or feel bad? And perhaps I'm wrong, right? That was an evolution for <laughs> him to say, maybe, maybe the inquiry, I, I'm willing to be wrong. And so once he got willing to admit that maybe he didn't have all the facts or his story could be wrong. There was a different third story even that could evolve. Um, that's where getting in to understand all of the hours and all of the things that were going on in the organization um, started to be, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for. It started to like uncover um, many different subsets of truths. This was this was a little bit of a shell shock. I don't know if it is for you when you learn this, but that a fact isn't a truth. And I think a lot of us think that facts are truth. And the truth of that is I can have a fact and you can have a fact and we have very different truths around the fact. So when you're, when you're working in an organization and you're working completely off data and I have my own filters to place on the data and you have your filters to place on the data, then we can come to very different conclusions on the very same data. And when you realize that as a leader and you really get that, that's scary. Mm. Because now the responsibility, if, you, if that's how you're wired and accountability for checking your position is really important, Mm -hmm. right? So that was the big lesson for him here when he was uncovering the the hours and all of the tactical things that were were happening in the organization there. Um, Once that became, um, I'm struggling with the words on this one for some reason. Once, Once that became a knowing or an understanding that he had, how he operated across functions, because that was important for his role, it was not just in the region, it was across functions globally. One of the pieces of feedback that he started to get was that he was more approachable. He was more willing to listen, which were things that was happening before. He was more, the sad part is most of the time he was right. Like mm-hmm. he was smart, he had enough experience and so he could read the story. But because he couldn't let someone else be wrong gracefully or come to him and ask for help gracefully because he had to be right instead of let that play out in a more loving way, um, he was just a pain to be around. And it was Mm -hmm. hard to be in his life because he'd make you look wrong and make you look bad. And then all that stopped. And you can see how that would change everything. Yeah, because I'm just imagining as a visual person, like, you know, he shows up differently people around around him feel more comfortable, less defended, they show up differently. And it's kind of a nice ripple effect, yes. not only in the workspace, but I imagine it can show up you know, at home yes. in social spaces, all that kind of good stuff, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, there is a good story, a short story with his son, he and his son, teenage son, that's always hard, she need anything. And they were, they were kind of knocking heads around what was his son gonna do when he graduated high school. Um, they had opposing views to how that should look, of course. And once 
he was able to understand that with the same set of facts, we could come to different conclusions. He just got curious, like, how, how could we both have the same facts, the schools, the studies, the cost, all the things, and, and he's picking that one, and I'm picking this one. How could that be? And then they could get in real dialogue, and then his son explained to him some key things that hadn't been in the kind of the pros and cons list, but were important and unspoken. It changed everything. So it's kind of cool. No, that's very cool. Yeah. So the six tenets, we've, we've talked a little about integrating mind, body, and soul. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little about evolving, aligning of soul and self, mm-hmm. connecting self and universe. We talked about I, we, empathy, and gratitude. Um, in the co-creating the innovative space, you talk about post-conventional, being post-conventional and problem solving. And I have to pick on that one because it's my tagline of my podcast, post-conventional living. You know, how the, what does post-conventional mean to you and how do you work with that concept with clients who are working in most cases, I would imagine a very conventional space. Well, didn't COVID bring that up for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got handed the best and the worst <laughs> in that scenario, but yep. I would say that's a really good example of post-conventionalism because we were doing things like this and then all of a sudden, we had to figure it out really quickly without a lot of vetted data, um, without systems most likely in place. And we all had to go home and work, you know? And um, when someone is willing to be co-creative, and I, and I don't remember if this story's in the book or not, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, but it's not. This, because th- it's COVID time. I, a cl- I had a client that was looking at going virtual part-time. They were looking at two days a week and then, you know, that was it. And that was a stretch. The senior VP of the North America and South America was like, I don't even want to do that. But if these millennials need it, we'll figure it out kind of thing, you know? <clears throat> and so the HR partner, pretty astute guy, was getting all the systems in place. And it wasn't supposed to happen until it would have been July when they first beta tested it. But in March, it went full on, right? So... We had a senior VP who was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. We've always in oil and gas and oil and gas always works like this. We never do anything different to now. Oh my Lord. This leader is like the, their main office is overseas. And so the overseas office is saying, everybody's going back to work five days a week. And the senior VP is like, no, we're not. No, we're not. That is not how it's going to work. It's becoming a recruiting issue. It's becoming this. It's a quality of life. Like, what it hasn't a year, a year, year and a few months, and we had that mm-hmm. kind of swing, but it was because of that influence of that tragedy crisis that we were all facing together that that co creation was able to come into play. Let me ask you about because you mentioned millennials, and let's put COVID aside for a moment. Yeah. Um, because, you know, one of the things I, I take away from your book is like being curious, and inquisitive, and like, you know, how people show up and how they want to live their lives. And it seems to me, millennials are showing up a lot differently as a generation than the previous generations, including ours. And that I don't necessarily like to use work, work life balance because it's dynamic, but you know, they want to have a life outside of work. You know, they're not willing to do like unpaid internships for 50, 60 hours a week, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, And I can tell you funny stories and horror stories and like, well, that's pretty cool stories around millennials. But we won't go there. What, what are your thoughts in terms of post-conventional living in terms of the millennial generation almost forcing businesses to start thinking different, both as clients of these businesses, but also as, as employees of these businesses? What are you finding? What am I finding as far as what the hell millennials are responding? Well, how, how are you, like the businesses that you consult for, how yeah. are they responding or reacting? Could be a reaction in a negative sense to the you know the changing dynamics that millennials bring to the workspace. Yeah, in a really cool way. Um, and I'm not sure if it's because of the type of leaders that are drawn to me are already gonna be wanting to innovate because that's kind of what I call in. So I wanna table that a little bit because I don't work with folks that aren't willing to do that so much anymore. That's true. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. There. Um, I'm finding a lot of innovation. And so the senior leaders that I'm working with tend to be between 50 and 65. You know, they're, they're, they're the key strategic leaders. And 
so many of them are actually having fun with this. And they're, they're like, hey, you mean we could have had a, a job that was our purpose and was like our life mission? What have I been doing for 30 years, you know? <laughs> um, so so they're, they're kind of like, yeah, that wasn't my plight in life. And that's okay. Um, we get into that later in the coaching, most certainly. But, but, I, but I think that's a cool thing. And they usually have kids that are in that age range. And they're like, I do want that for my kids. The dilemma starts to be there where the contraction that I find in the innovation, if it's to be there, is just the systems don't allow that type of innovation. Like the systems we're currently working in, aren't, they, they haven't caught up. And so we're creating systems as well as innovating at the same time. And that can, when you're the senior leader looking at your risk analysis portfolio, that can be a little, you know, worrisome. Um, but for me, most of the leaders, like we just had a new CEO come on and we're doing, you know how he's presenting himself to all of his staff and still virtually because they're global is we're doing fireside chats. So he and I are going to get on and we're going to have a fireside chat about who he oh, is, cool. where he wants to go, and what he wants to do, live for his whole organization. Wow. That's purpose. Transparency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's transparent. And it's evolving and it's meeting people where they are. And um, so for me, I would have to say, I'm happy that I have a client base embracing this. <laughs> Yeah, no, seriously. So yeah. uh, last question for you, specific to the six tenets under, yeah. under the compassionately powerful and all things, and you kind of just touched upon this now. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is create room for flow while maintaining structure. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you literally kind of tease us with it because like, okay, COVID is forcing some shifts. Mm -hmm. You know, the systems have to catch up with you know, the requirements, the legal and regulatory and fearful requirements of the mm -hmm. pandemic, but also whole... Um, generation the millennials are kind of forcing changes too um, and then technology I mean you have the whole yeah. digital nomad phenomenon where people can work from anywhere around the globe at any time and you know, do their thing talk a little bit about creating room for flow while maintaining a structure and the kind of that dynamic balance between the two yeah I would say this is probably one of the tenets I've been spending personally a lot of time evolving inside of um, because I've created a life that doesn't have a lot of structure because of who I am. Um, and I actually need some structure to innovate, which feels counterintuitive when I say it to people. Uh, because for me, I can innovate a lot of things, but it doesn't serve anything if I don't get some of them into practice or into someone else's hands to make better, even if that's the only scenario. So for me, when you're, when you're in flow, <clears throat> And you have, a, you have an appropriate structure. So I kind of like use the bowling alley because I don't even know a better analogy. But my, do you remember the bumpers on the bowling alley, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my parents would put the bumpers up for us. We never wanted to have to use them, but they were always just there in case, you know, so we weren't screwing up someone else's game. So, so that's kind of how I think about it when I think about this particular structure of float piece, that you're moving within that alley. You're even bumping up against some edges. You might, you might be hitting lots of pins, no pins, gutter balls. It doesn't really matter, but you have enough structure that the damage that that innovation could create is, at, is appropriately minimized. And in some areas of work, there's no minimization needed. And in other areas, um, we could talk about return to work right now for legal and other reasons. There, we don't have a lot of bumpers on for this reason. And then you just take the this state versus that state, because the feds are really in this game, right? So each state's having to navigate, and inside that, each, each company's having to navigate. Well, the state says you don't need to wear a mask, but the building says I need to wear a mask, but my company says I don't need to wear a mask. So I don't need a mask until I get out of my car, into the building, up the elevator, and then I can take my mask off. Do you see? So there's all of this, this flow that's happening in there, and there's some structure that's imposing itself or is self-imposed. Uh, and I think we're going to need it. I've kind of seen the dilemma with, I don't wonder, be curious to see what you see. The systems that aren't serving us well anymore, and there's many of them, um, I don't necessarily always, although sometimes, prescribe to the blowing up method, right? I think there might be a way to stair step in or out of any of them. Um, and I think that's a really good place for us to practice a flow inside a structure. 
Because if we just blow up our whole financial system, we're probably not going to be in a great place. But I think we can all see it's shifting. You know what I mean? So how do you have enough structure, but not too much? So kind of what I'm hearing you say is kind of an evolutionary approach as opposed to a revolution. But I think both apply. So that's what I'm saying is I think there are places where revolution is the thing that's needed. Discerning abilities would need to be had. Um, sometimes revolutions feel like they're put upon us if we didn't participate, and that's true too. But then other times, I don't think revolution is the answer. Do you? How do you feel about that? You know, so as I get older, I'm less revolutionary, more evolutionary. Like I don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater because I see, yeah. looking backwards, there's a lot of rituals, traditions, norms that are useful, and they've served yeah. our species for hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to see us evolve new things. Um, I just gave a talk a couple of days ago and I, and I quoted um, um, Buckminster Fuller, you know, you create the new models and make the old models obsolete. And so I think it's both. Like how do we reform our present day institutions and systems slowly over time mm -hmm. to, it, so they can be more adaptive or anti-fragile or resilient, but while also building the new institutions mm -hmm. that will eventually replace the old ones. As opposed to like, let's just, like you said, kind of burn down what we have today and build the new, because I've seen uh, reading history, usually when these people come to power and they burn down the old and they want to replace with the new, millions of people die. Yeah. And a lot of people's lives are obviously destroyed and ruined, including the earth. So I don't think that's the best way of proceeding. <laughs> Evolutionary. <Fair enough>. yes. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So your book. The Power of Graceful Leaders. Where can we find the book? And where can we learn more about Amazon. your work in general? Yeah. Okay. So the book's on Amazon. Um, um, there's two websites because I'm kind of in an evolution myself. My name, AlexisThompson.com. And then um, the place we're creating is called Ubuntu, a safe haven.com. So either places, um, you can, I can be found, social media. Um, and if, if you're interested in chickens, I have lots of really cute pictures of chickens because we're getting into that whole scheme of things recently, so, yeah. Actually, speaking of that, no, let me let me encourage you to plug you yourself on Instagram, too. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. On, on Instagram. Oh, they want to call, Thompson. Like you, you... Yeah, it's all okay. at Alexis Thompson, A-L-E-X-S-Y-S. Yeah. Okay, well, on the show notes, we'll make sure to include both websites and then your Instagram okay. account, too. Thank well, you. Alexis, this has been great. Great to talk to you. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. Let me let me encourage everyone to check it out and then to seek you out and hire you to coach them through these these necessary evolutions we now face as we transition, like I like to say, from the industrial to the post-industrial. So yeah. thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been great.